are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Esha. This week, Florida has designated November 8th the Victims of Communism Memorial Day. And so we have Dan Bochner here to talk about the victims of communism and their memorial in Canada. It says that you were a mayoral candidate for Pentington, British Columbia. Can you tell us a little bit about your previous experience and how this came about? I, I, I do, yeah. Um, I, got, I got involved in politics at a fairly early age. I, um, so I, I grew up in a really small town in British Columbia on Vancouver Island, uh, like very resource extraction based. So it was a, it was a logging town. And uh, when I was a kid, there was a sort of nationalized forestry extraction industry. There was a thing called British Columbia Forest Products, uh, which which basically, uh, you know, provided employment for most of the people in, in the town that I grew up in. Um, and then in the 90s, uh, all of that was, I mean, as I'm sure you know, like uh, that wave of Clinton era privatization kind of washed up on the shores of, you know, the rest of the world. And and my hometown was definitely a, a place that suffered from that. So that politicized me at an early age. You also had a rock band for a while, right? Want to tell us a little bit more about it? Uh, then I became an anarchist, as a lot of people do. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, you know, I lived in a squat and uh, I played in an anarchist crust punk band and I did flyering. I protested the... Uh, uh, protested at the APAC rally um, in Vancouver. Uh, I did food, not bombs. But then I became completely disillusioned with it. Um, as as many- you know, what really bugs me is the fact that all music is like copyrighted, and YouTube like dings us all the time. But I, I yeah, I agree. Um, I should have you on as a guest on late nights with. Lenin, so that we can push all of the anarchist tendencies away. <laughs> I would love that. That's that's great. That works for me. Um, so so yeah, I I kind of transitioned out of anarchism into a phase of uh, what I would say would be like reactionary nihilism. Uh, I went to I, w- I went to school. I took you know political science and history courses, but it was. I have to say, it was really only when my music career took off and I started being able to travel that uh, my current sort of, you know, I feel like I feel like the scales were removed from my eyes, so to speak. Like, um, and it was specifically tour. I, I really focused on touring um, ex-Soviet bloc countries and and Balkans, so ex-Yugoslavia and sort of Baltics. Poland, uh, Russia. And once I started making friends in those countries and going back, I, I, uh, yeah, I had, a, I had a big change of heart, um, politically. It w- and that also coincided with the, uh, global financial collapse. So I could see in real time capital leaving the places that I was playing, these sort of fringes of the European empire, like, like Estonia or Latvia, like just watching European capital flee these places after the collapse, after the crisis, um, that that kind of radicalized me. And then, and then, of course, just like the the continuing sort of austerity here at home in Canada. So that that pretty much hardened my politics, and and that's where I'm at now. Okay. Do you consider yourself a tanky? And have you been accused of being an Assadist yet? <laughs> um, you know, I have been accused of being an Assadist by, uh, like, who? What I consider a very specific group of mentally ill people on the internet. You know, uh, 
Um, everyone gets accused of being paid by Assad, and I'm like, I wish, please pay us if you're listening, Assad. I don't know why you would be listening, but if you are, please pay us. <laughs> I've, I've mainly stayed out of uh, any kind of Syria discourse because, uh, to be perfectly honest, I, I, it is way, I am way out of my depth in that. Um, the thing that I get accused of mostly is being paid by Putin. That's boring every day for yeah. me. Yeah. So uh, we we had um, Canada had our own small version of uh, of kind of Russiagate hysteria. Um, Except you guys have a uh, your Christoph Friedland, your uh, prime minister, is a little bit vice prime minister. Oh yeah, lord, she's, she's the uh, yeah she's she was the deputy PM. She's the minister of finance now, and. Um, you know, back in, I believe it was 2015, it was post-Maidan, and uh, a f these two Canadian communists, uh, Canadian-Ukrainian communists, uh, went to the University of Alberta archives and dug up Christy Freeland's grandfather's personal papers, basically. And I don't know, for anyone who's listening who doesn't know... Um, Christian Freeland's grandfather, Mihailo Chomiak, uh, worked at a newspaper called Krakowski Vishti, which was, um, which was the, yeah, it was a Nazi newspaper. It was the main propaganda organ for occupied Galicia, which was uh, Ukraine and, and parts of Poland, Western Ukraine and Poland. So, Western Ukraine, correct, and Eastern Poland. Uh, and he worked directly under a man named Emil Gazner. And who, Joseph uh, Goebbels. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. So, Gastard was uh, the head propaganda minister for that area. So he would be um, sort of dictating propaganda policy from Goebbels to these, to specifically to outlets like Krakowski Vishti, and it was tailored for the region. So one of the things Krakowski Vishti uh published constantly was uh just basically urging young ukrainians to join the waffen ss galician division which was set up by uh set up by the nazis to resist um the advance of the red army who were and by resist the red army we mean they um murdered babies with shovels yeah 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 i mean absolutely they did uh they did massacres and genocide. I mean, uh, one one commandant in particular, uh, Roman Chukievich, mm. oversaw oversaw uh, the massacre of. I, I believe the low end estimate is forty to sixty thousand poles. Oh God! So essentially, yes, that's so Christy Freeland's grandfather was working for this uh, working for this Nazi outlet. Um, it was exposed by. Uh, Canadian communists, Ukraine, Canadian. Because I was, I have questions, but then you mentioned a name just now, and I swear I remember seeing that name. So I just want to. Oh, yeah. oh, it's a, it's tribute to liberty. So they really love to kind of hide this stuff deep in the. Uh... Uh, it's not very well hidden, by the way. No, it's not. <laughs> It's not uh, incredibly well hidden. Let's see. Milestones, board of directors, pathway. To Can liberty. we talk a little bit about Roman Shukhevich? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I brought him up as an example of uh, as an example of the I he what he did represents the ideological project of uh, this sort of Ukrainian nationalist. Uh, Nazi fusion that was the SS Galician 14th Division. So Ukraine had its own independence movement, which uh, whose ideology is extremely parallel with uh, with Nazi Germany. So I guess you have to look at it like you know these aren't these aren't like socialist liberation movements like the partisans in 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 yugoslavia these their ideology hems entirely parallel to to the nazis they're you know the, 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 it is its foundation is uh anti-semitism 
uh, ethnic purity and sort of a national um, that's national. It's it's nationalism. It's fascism, basically. And to understand the exact nature of Ukrainian nationalism, I am going to include some Einsatzgruppen reports with the show notes. And there are some occasions where even German SS officers think that the Galicia SS division is a bit over the top or a bit too cruel. So make what you will of it. Which is which is interesting because you see that echoed again in um, with the with the way that the uh, Nazi administration approached uh, the Croatian fascist regime, the the Ustasha, yeah. Okay, let's tr- tell us about the tri- new tribute to uh, Liberty's brand new Victims of Communism memorial, and then we will talk about certain bricks that are memorializing certain people. So- my uh i have a podcast called bottleman and uh my co-host and i decided that since canada has such a long and and sort of unpublicized history of uh either platforming fascist diaspora groups post second world war or actually weaponizing them against uh leftists or left causes within canada we wanted to do a whole series on it and um one of the one of the sort of biggest high profile projects of this movement has been a massive monument to what what they call the victims of communism yeah i mean the old joke in communist circles is that it is I'll put the joke meme with Hitler, Goebbels, and Mussolini. Um, it, the joke is that if you're a victim of a communist, you are a Nazi. But go on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty much it. Um, so, I mean, I don't know how far back you want to go, but... Oh, well, let's go to um, everything. Okay, so where so you you're talking about so just start with like who funds it where's this monument why are they building it when are they building it just like everything about the monument and then we'll go to the brick once we they learn about the monument okay perfect um so this this monument is really uh really comes out of another movement that um that came up in the 1980s which i'm sure you're familiar with which is uh the movement to uh sort of codify a holiday that equates fascism and communism, which is what we call Black Ribbon Day. And Black Ribbon Day was the brainchild of a Estonian German uh, who was born in Can- born in Canada. His, his, his name his, his name is Marcus Hess. And uh, 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 hold on, is he related to the other more famous Nazi Hess? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of digging into that, but no. Um, but yeah, he uh, his dream was to create a holiday that essentially equated um, equated communism with with fascism. Um, so Hess uh, belonged to something called the Estonian Central Council, which was a, a Toronto-based uh, Estonian diaspora group uh, whose early leadership was just littered with Nazi collaborators, in, including former members of, of the Waffen-SS. Um, so, and, that, and that group is ideologically linked to another group called Esti uh, Vabadulsit, which was started in Berlin by uh, SS Oberstammführer Harald Riepelu. So, so yeah, that gives you an idea of where where these people are coming from, right? So, so Hess hooks up with uh, what at the time was like the most powerful diaspora group in this sort of milieu, and that was the U- uh, Ukrainian Canadian Congress. So, along with the, the Current president of the or the the former president of the UCC, Yaroslav uh, so, uh, Sokolik, he basically took this idea and and made it um, transnational. So they they would uh, sort of ally themselves with the anti-Bolshevik League of Nations, um, the CIA funded Captive Nations Group, 
and they went on what is what is pretty much a world tour. So they went to Europe and they did a speaking tour. They spoke on um, Radio Free Liberty, uh, Radio Free Europe, and uh, liaisoned with uh, Slava Stetsko, who was working for the Anti-Bolshevik League of Nations at the time. They had a big meet- meeting at the OUN headquarters in uh, Munich, and there's a there's a photograph of Hess and Stetsko at this um, at this headquarters, and behind them is a bust of. Roman Shukovich, who we who we were talking about earlier. So th- this is the uh, this is kind of the 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 background to this movement, and and I just you know there's a really good quote um, that I think can sum all of this up, which is it's a quote from uh, David Somerville, who was a partner of Hess's in in sort of advancing this program, and he's talking about his first meeting with Hess. And this is from a book that uh, the Canadian-Polish Congress put out in 2014 called Black Ribbon Day. And the quote goes like this. This is Somerville explaining their first meeting and, and sort of their plan for Black Ribbon Day. Somerville says, it was a revelation to use the public's pre-existing revulsion for the Nazis to get them to feel similarly towards Soviet communists. And in condemning both of the regimes simultaneously, it will become impossible for critics to attack us as right-wing extremists or Nazi sympathizers. Uh, okay, we're going to so do that right now. Um, that's disgusting. And like I yeah. said, um, the collaborators were often much crueler than the Nazis themselves. Um, in Ukraine, po- Poland, um, m- most of Eastern Europe, uh, as we know, eight, 80% of the battle was fought in the Eastern Front, Eastern to Europe Front, Western to Russia Front. So um, they were, uh, yeah, so this is actually the scum of the earth for life. I, I can't be neutral on this one. This is like literally the scum of and scum of the earth. Okay, so yes, so 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 there in that quote you have the you have the origins and and the sort of ideology behind the double genocide theory, and I I think that's like very very important uh, to to know that that exists, you know that 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 this is a predetermined project to equate communism and fascism. and it's kind of, to me, it's like the worst horseshoe that's like saying liberating Auschwitz is just as bad as creating Auschwitz, which is not. But um, it, so let's talk a little bit about the class aspect of the Nazi sympathizers. Like what made these people sympathize, not, uh, I guess, murder babies, I mean, uh, exterminate, participate in the wholesale genocide of their own neighbors, like what was or I guess can you explain if they're from the wealthier class, landlord class, et cetera? Well, well, I mean, like you know, as as fasc- fascists usually skew bourgeois because because fascism uh, has their interests at heart, mm-hmm. you know, um, and and I think you know from a Canadian perspective, I think you can see that reflected in what happened with the Ukrainian community. Uh, in the years following World War II, which is something maybe you went over with Moss. Uh, Let, Robinson, let's go over but, again, um, just in case, please. But I, yeah. So, so the 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 short version is essentially Canada has had a Ukrainian diaspora um, within its borders since about 1895, and the first two or three waves of Ukrainian uh, immigrants to Canada coalesced around uh you know what they were doing really back back home which is uh agriculture farming and they leaned extremely left so uh ukrainian diaspora here set up labor temples uh workers temples they even set up an early version of healthcare, um which extended beyond the ukrainian community and to look at it sort of in a geopolitical or uh, I don't know, to look at it in, in, in a geopolitical sense, it's Canada itself is a resource extraction based economy. So when you have uh, a group of workers united by ethnicity, 
who are all of a sudden asking for labor rights and doing things like setting up a proto version of healthcare, uh, as as the government, you have kind of a problem. So the way to solve that problem in the in the eyes of the Canadian government was to inject those communities with recently demobilized fascists who were who were mainly uh, as we were just saying like who were mainly from a higher class than the people who were already settled here so you know people like christian freeland's uh, grandfather he was a newspaper editor you know like these are these are prof- like quote unquote professional class people so after the second world war ended canada imported thousands of demobilized fascists injected them into these communities they assumed positions of power so freeland's grandfather started publishing you know uh, some of his friends ended up working at universities and with that they kind of pulled they moved the political needle in in the ukrainian community super far right and also at the same time the rcmp were appropriating this is in the middle of the red scare so RCMP were using these recently, you know, arrived fascists to help appropriate communist Ukrainian property, socialist Ukrainian property, uh, you know, to uh, appropriate labor temples, to uh, bust up meetings. Yeah. And this isn't the first time they do this. Like, like uh, you know, as we, we covered on the Bottleman podcast, Inco Mines. So there's a smelter in Sudbury called Inco. It was the second biggest nickel mine in the world in the early 1960s and there was a big labor movement there and the canadian government's answer to that was to import hungarian fascists some of them literal ex-nazis to bust up the labor union that is literally the original purpose of the brown shirts or black shirts depending on whether you're talking about mussolini or hitler so they're actually re-importing like they are using them for the same purpose that was they were originally used for. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, yeah, so this is essentially what happens to the Ukrainian community. Uh, the, the leftists in the community, this proud tradition of socialism in these Western Ukrainian communities is uh, erased. And what is left is a sort of zombified version of Ukrainian nationalism, which venerates, you know, the people who lost the Second World War, like people like Shukhevich, you know, the Soviets rinsed them, they crushed them. But that ideology was allowed to grow and mutate in in Canada. Or maybe two years ago, there was a alleged um, victims of communism monument that was, quote unquote, vandalized in Ottawa. And now they have, uh, so, uh, okay, what, why does that exist? And what is this new monument that they're building? Okay, so you remember Marcus Hess from Black Ribbon Day, right? So, yeah. Yes, we remember Mar- the yeah. half Estonian, yeah. half German. God, yeah. I don't yeah. know so, about their family. So the Victims of Communism Memorial really started as uh, the brainchild of a conservative politician here, the, the premier of Alberta um, and the leader of the UCP. His name is Jason Kenney. And Jason Kenney, uh, you know, a little background, like he grew up as a reactionary Catholic. Um, he went to the University of San Francisco. Um, he, he was, uh, you know, an anti-abortion activist. He was apparently you know, just reading through his, his personal history, like the guy was just a complete pain in the ass constantly. And, and he loved, you know, he was obsessed with the idea of cultural Marxism and, uh, and this kind of modern conservatism. It's cultural Marxism and anti-Semitic dog whistle. I always assumed it was <laughs> kind of feels like it is. I mean, I, I always think of Kenny uh, as the, he, he gave a he gave a very impassioned speech about cultural Marxism, where he referred to the Frank Frankfurt School as uh, those Frankfurt boys because he couldn't remember the name. So oh, it always makes it always makes me smile, you know. Um, so he uh, he. he kind of climbs the ladder in the uh, federal government. Um, this is back in the mid-2000s when Stephen Harper is prime minister. 
But the origins of this monument are basically in 2007. Um, he was he was spending time with the Czech ambassador. Uh, it was at the time it was uh, Pavel Voselik, and they went and they went to visit um, this place called Mesarik Town, which is a huge private park owned by the Czech and Slovak community associations in Toronto. And in the middle of that private park, there is a statue called Crucified Again which depicts a man crucified on a hammer and sickle. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I mean, that would have been justice. If I will put some accounts just in the description so people can understand how much gorier, like how much worse the Eastern campaign was. So yeah, that would have been justice, but go on. <laughs> so yeah, so, uh, so he has a revelation. He looks at this statue and he thinks, you know, wouldn't it be great if this was not in a private park, if we could build a bigger statue that memorialized uh, the victims of communism and have it in a public place. So he creates, um, he creates this, this, it's basically like a think tank slash advocacy group called tribute to Liberty. Ah, and how do they get so much money because building statues and is expensive. Well, that's that's interesting. So, so tribute to liberty um, is made up of uh, the same diaspora communities that um, were behind the movement to codify Black Ribbon Day, um, and and in fact, the same people in a lot of cases. So, Marcus Hess is on the board of tribute to liberty. Um, the Ukrainian Canadian Congress has has a seat. You know, so you're you're looking at about nine different member diaspora groups the difference between um tribute to liberty and say the black ribbon day group is that uh tribute to liberty has added south vietnamese and south korean members <laughs> so they've added uh, uh, two like new groups okay to this. let me just quickly um preface this with um south korea was occupied by the japanese and there were many collaborators in that area so um Use your imagination. I don't know much about the South Vietnamese. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, I, I, you know, I do know that the diaspora community here, um, at least the sort of more political wing of it, ha was really active with with Jason Kenney. So they kind of petitioned him um, prior to him coming up with this idea for the monument, they petitioned him to have the Canadian government recognize the flag of the Republic of Vietnam, mm -hmm. which, which is a country that does not exist. Um, so, and he did, he recognized it briefly. And then I, I think, um, I think they had to retract it. Okay. So they added, so yeah, go ahead. So uh, from black ribbon day, they've added some other some more diverse fashions, for lack of a better word. Um, yeah, I, I would say diverse anti like like vehemently anti-communist groups. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, so tribute to liberty starts petitioning and raising money. Um, immediately, the federal government agrees to fund this monument, um, and they start holding fundraisers themselves. And one of the biggest. One of the biggest boosters for Tribute to Liberty and the, and the monument is Paula Frum, who is David, you know David Frum, right? Yes, he is the guy who did the weapons of mass destruction propaganda for George W. Bush, who deserves, yeah, yep. yes, him. He, he coined the phrase axis of evil. He was a speech writer for Bush and Paula is his sister. So Paula uh, has a, basically a fundraiser at her house that raises $400,000 for this monument. Jesus. She contributes, she contributes a hundred thousand dollars of her own money. Um, and things at the time, you know, things seem like they're going great for, for the victims of communism memorial and tribute to Liberty in general, but the good times don't last. Like they, they quickly run into problems. So the national capital commission and uh and and a handful of concerned architects and citizens start raising questions about whether this enormous brutalist memorial uh should be placed in the middle of downtown ottawa hmm. um and there and there's kind of like a public backlash like it becomes very very unpopular 
and people kind of cite like the United States has a Victims of Communism Memorial that costs a fraction of what these people are asking for. Uh, uh, yeah, um, we, we should have another episode about the hours. Oh, my God. Yes, it, it, it does have one somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's in Washington, D.C., and it costs it costs one point five million dollars. Um, the Canadian monument, the projected cost was five point five million at the outset. And then that's oh. kind of gone up and up. Why is it so expensive? What are they, are they making it out of gold bricks? Like, why is what's going on? Well, they originally they wanted it to be absolutely massive. It was going to be almost like a park in and of itself. And um, I, th I think really the, the, the story of this monument is th these groups have been so emboldened and have been kind of getting, I mean, I guess I could say, you could say like, they're just like high on their own supply, you know, yeah. Ideologi ideologically speaking, that um, they were dreaming really, really big. They wanted, you know, uh, I think one of the original quotes was, they wanted a 5,374 square meter sort of plot of land that they could sit this thing in. In downtown Ottawa. Yeah. That's expensive. Yeah, that's extremely expensive. Want to help fund Historically's Victims of Communism Monument, where we post every Twitter dunk Esha has made? Carving 280 characters for 233.6 thousand tweets into marble ain't cheap. So go to historically.substack.com and subscribe to our newsletter and listen to previous episodes of our podcast. That's historically.substack.com. You can also catch our live streams on Twitch, Rockfin, or YouTube to learn more about feline friend and revolutionary Vladimir Ilyich Ulanov by tuning into our Late Nights with Lenin on twitch.tv forward slash historically, rockfin.com forward slash historically, or search for us on YouTube. So, and, and you know, and, and the other thing that happened was this was pitched to the Canadian public as a quote-unquote nonpartisan project. I guess you know? technically the partisan fighters were the communists, so it is <laughs> nonpartisan. Yeah, it is quite quite literally anti-partisan. Um, but, you know, it, it pretty much revealed itself right off the bat to be um, a joint effort on the part of these diaspora groups and uh, conservative government who were supporting them. And I, I think that's important. That, that's an important point to think about, too, is that. Okay, so are you, you hold on. Like, are we talking about the Harper government? Yeah, we're talking about the Harper government. OK, go ahead. So, the, so, like, without the sort of blank slate of these conservative politicians, um, you know, they have they have the resources, they have the power to make this happen. But without them being completely incredulous, uh, incurious, and and just in totally incurious, in, in yeah, just collaborator. Well, that's that's the question, right? Like, it is some combination of them tacitly agreeing with the idea that communism equals fascism uh and communism is bad in fact com fascism for them is preferable to communism it's i think it's a i think it's a combination of that and the fact that they're just fucking stupid and they don't understand history and they have no interest in understanding hey while i was browsing this tribute to liberty site i noticed that in 2014 a certain justin trudeau wrote a letter in support of this monument when he was an MP. So what gives? Do you want to read the letter out loud for our readers? This is extremely depressing. So it's, yeah, uh, Valentine's Day, 2014. How romantic. <laughs> yeah. Dear Tribute to Liberty's Board of Directors, I am writing you today to congratulate the Tribute to Liberty uh, to congratulate the Tribute to Liberty on their continuing efforts to bring about a Canadian memorial to honor the victims of communist regimes. Since the first communist state was established in 1917, Canada has been a safe haven for countless refugees fleeing persecution <laughs> and seeking a restoration of freedom, democracy, and human rights. We as Canadians must never forget the pain and suffering entire generations endured under communist rule 
and it is important that we remember the lives of untold of its untold victims. Memorialization is important as it not only serves to heighten Canada's Canadians' awareness about the lives of those who suffered under oppression, but reminds us how lucky we are to live in a country that celebrates the virtues of peace and liberty. The tribute to liberty has come a long way in their efforts to create a permanent memorial dedicated to the victims of communism and pays tribute to the many contributions Canada has made in coming to their aid. So a little self-congratulation there. Um, on behalf of the Liberal Party of Canada and our parliamentary and our parliamentary caucus, I stand with all those across the country as we recognize tribute to liberty's tireless work. That's one way of putting it, yeah, uh, to bring about public awareness to the suffering of millions. Okay, so I got to say, this this letter and the timing of it is pretty funny. Because, Go ahead. Because basically what happened was, so Trudeau wrote that letter, and then when his liberal government came into power, th th one of the first things they did was cut the funding to this monument in half. That's an improvement from Harper, okay? <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and, you know... um. In retrospect, I think, I think the reason that that it was cut in half, and the reason why uh, the liberal government was sort of perceived as to, as to be putting the kibosh on this, was that this whole project was associated with the Harper government, and at that point in time, can Canadians really publicly wanted to move on from that era. Like the liberals were seen as this like new beginning, you know, a sort of course correction for Canada. So I I feel like this this letter is a bit of lip service because yeah the first thing they did was uh defund the monument retract some funding and uh basically demand that that tribute to liberty come up with a new design because the uh, what was the old design let's go over that the old design was uh, was created by a company called Abstract, and it was a kind of brutalist. I mean, ironically, like kind of looked like a Spomanik, like <laughs> which, which I, I always thought was pretty funny. Like <laughs> it, it was a very brutalist, uh, brutalist design that that was more of an installation that you could walk around than the new design. Um, which is, I believe, uh, designed by a guy named Raph, is smaller, much smaller, and looks like a collection of brass rods uh, encased in concrete. And then there are these weird bricks with like some something to catch light or something. Right? Yeah, and that and okay, so that's a good segue. So, so Trudeau's government gets in; they announce the defunding of the monument or the reduction of funds of the monument, not complete the funding. And this creates a major cash flow problem for Tribute to Liberty. So they need to come up with roughly half of the budget on their own. So they essentially start crowd crowdsourcing, crowdfunding. Mm. And the way they do and the way they do this is that they um, they have a thing called the Pathway to Liberty, which is for a thousand dollars, you can buy a brick. And you can dedicate that brick to a victim of communism. Uh -huh. And that brick is logged in the pathway to liberty. It will be part of the monument. And then your dedication lives online. Uh, oh, God. Okay. Uh, for a thousand dollars of brick. For a thousand dollars of brick. So in that, um, that link that I sent you, uh, the pathway to liberty link, you can go through and look at each individual brick who paid for it and what it's dedicated That is what I did last week in preparation for this interview. And let's go through some interesting bricks. But thank God there is no brick for Hitler yeah. or Himmler or who else? Maybe Goebbels? Well, not yet. But, but yeah. there are some people who come very close. <laughs> yes, it might be coming. So the first brick is brick number 09754-09758 in memory yes. of General Roman Shukevich. All right. So, yeah, uh, Shukevich, as we said, was a Ukrainian nationalist who um, was a Nazi collaborator, like literally uh, worked for the Nazis in the, I believe it's the Naktikal Battalion. 
Yeah, and is uh, responsible for. I mean, you know, I, I guess the top of his greatest hits is a is a massacre of uh, poles uh, between forty and sixty thousand. That's the. The low end estimate. There's actually a statue to Shukovich in um, Edmonton, I believe, at a Ukrainian cult at a Ukrainian cultural center. I mean, I'm sure everyone listening to this knows about the uh, the monument to the SS Ukrainian SS battalion in Oakville, Ontario, at the Ukrainian cemetery. But I don't know if we do. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Oh, okay. So you know, Canada, Canada, uh, besides you know, being dead set on building this memorial to the victims of communism, uh, some of the groups involved with, you know, building that monument have their own monuments. And uh, yeah, so Ukrainian, there's a, there is a statue of Roman Shukovich in Edmonton outside of a, I believe it's a Ukrainian youth center. And then in Oakville, Ontario, there was a memorial statue to the SS 14th Galician division. And something, uh, and this this bizarre Kafkaesque um, situation came up last year when that monument was defaced. Um, someone graffitied. I, I think they just spray painted Nazis or Nazi Nazi monument on it. And uh, the Oakville Police Department then investigated that as a hate crime. <laughs> for oh God, okay, well. This is the division from which the famous photo, The Last Jew in Liev, comes from. And it looks like this division is the one that shot The Last Jew in Liev. Okay, yeah, I'm just going to pull up something on the Oakville Monument because it's, uh, it's, it's pretty funny. Yeah, it's at the... It's at the uh, St. Voldemir um, Cemetery in uh, in Oakville, Ontario. So on yeah, on June twenty first, uh, this monument to the Fourteenth Waffen Grenadier Division of the SS uh, was vandalized and spray painted with the words "quote Nazi War Monument." And then Halton Regional Police, which were first investigating the incident as, quote, a hate-motivated crime, issued a statement on July 17th to clarify that now they are investigating it as vandalism. <laughs> so that I, th I think that's, that's indicative of, um, like, how brazen these communities are in Canada, you know, like... I'm just looking at the basic records and my mouth is agape that they have a monument to this division and these people. Yeah, yeah. It's at the entrance to, I think, their youth center in Edmonton. For a quick summary, in 1941, they set up a puppet state. Who was the head yeah. of the Croatian puppet state? <laughs> that would be Ante Pavlic. Okay, so I'm looking through the bricks and uh, 09497, the General Committee of United Croats of Canada. And this is what they say about Ante. In memory of Dr. Ante Pavlich family, Dr. Ante Pavlich was a doctor of law and the legal head of state of the independent state of Croatia. Tito's communists tried to assassinate him many times. He and his wife sacrificed their lives and existence for family, God, country, and people. So why is this um, well, offensive? Well, okay, so I, I have to say this is the first... I look, When I was doing preparation for this series that uh, Riley and I are doing with Bottleman... Um, I, I looked through all of the bricks, basically. I I spent an evening just just checking each brick, seeing what the monument was, seeing what the dedications were, and the Pavlich one. I the Pavlich one sh shocked me. <laughs> yes, it shocked me to the core, um, too. So you tell tell us everything like you uh why it shocked you and what's wrong with it go ahead well well it shocked me because because it has like a croatian fascist salute right in the dedication like oh the, where is the salute 
ZDZ Boggy Harvati, like uh, I did not know that. Yeah, is that like yeah, a Sikh Heil? It's kind of like uh, there's that, and then there's Damza Spremni, like like ready for the homeland. That that's their version of um, Slava Ukraina or Lebensraum. Lebensraum Heil Hitler. You know, it's a salute, right? Yeah. Boggy Harvati, God in Croatia, right? And and then and then the addendum on it. Uh, which says their eldest daughter, Viznia, uh, Viznia Pavlich, who never married and died alone, published many of her father's uh, books. What? She, sa- she sacrificed much because of her family and heritage. Communists made her life difficult until death. And it's just like, if you know what the Ustashe did in Croatia and you know what that family did and what, you know, the ideology and actions of Pavlich led to, it is... Um, it is a miracle that she was even allowed to live. Like <laughs> that, yes, uh, the communists were uh, infinitely merciful. So, in preparation yeah. for this interview, I read two bullets for Ante Pavlich, um, where this guy just like has a, a big obsession and goes and shoots him. But um, mm-hmm. and he deserved the two bullets. So, go ahead, tell us about what made. So just uh, where do we begin with Ante? So I mean, my the main thing for someone who doesn't know anything about Pavlich, the main takeaway is you have to look at uh, a place called Yazenovac, which is it is uh, one of the worst concentration camps, uh, you know, death camps uh, that the Second World War produced, and it was in fact so bad that uh, Nazi officials who were surveying and touring this place had to cable back to berlin essentially asking um high command to tell pavlich to cool it uh german um ah found it okay this is what wehrmacht general edmund gleis von horstenau said uh, uh, our troops have to be mute witnesses of such events <laughs> it does not reflect well on their otherwise high reputation. This may happen eventually. Right now, with the available forces, I could not ask for such an ad hoc intervention in individual cases. Uh, ad hoc inter- in individual cases, it could make the German army look responsible for the countless crimes which it could not prevent in the past. Okay, he goes on with this. Um Increased activity of the bands of uh, rebels is chiefly due to the atrocities carry atrocities carried out by the Ustazi is it Ustazi? Uh, Ustashe yeah. in Croatia against the Orthodox oh, this Orthodox Serbian population. The Ustaje committed their deeds in a bestial manner, not only against males of conscript age, but especially against helpless old people, women, children. The number of the Orthodox that the Croats have massacred and sadistically tortured to death is about 300,000. And this is the yep. Nazi uh, Wehrmacht Opengruben, uh, what is it? Open, whatever, Führer complaining to the German high command about it. Okay. Yeah, and I think they were complaining for two reasons. The one was just they were sickened by it, um, you know, on a personal level, and 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 the other reason is that they were extremely worried that it would make them look bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's easy and, because of <laughs> and it and it would like because because Pavlich's program went well beyond what uh, you know what whatever his fascist puppet masters in Berlin um, were. He added some local flavor to it. So so beyond just ethnically cleansing Jews from Croatia and purging communists, he, he extended that net to Serbs, um, Bosnians, Roma, you know, there was there was a large Roma population that uh, that was liquidated. And a couple years ago, a couple years ago, when I was in I was in Belgrade visiting friends, uh, my friend Milos and I went to Tito's mausoleum, and in the mausoleum, there's a great photo archive of uh, sort of on the ground photographs and reporting from taken pictures taken by partisans um, during during the uh, guerrilla war against you know. Yugoslavia Bobby. was a little unique in that. 
they mostly liberated themselves. Like they were kind of forgotten by most of the world. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they had um, the, there was talk of like material support from the Americans that never showed up. Um, there was talk of like Red Army support, which which was never came, never came, was pretty minimal because the Red Army was occupied elsewhere. Um, but the photographs that we, Milos and I went through, you know, in this in in the mausoleum, there are some absolutely brutal photographs from Croatia, especially in and around Split. There's a series of photographs of uh, Serbs with their eyes gouged out ah! from lampposts. Yes. You know, this was a this was a Nustache tactic. Uh, there's photographs of just stacks of bodies. You know, um, it, it was it was it was very hard for me to look to look at <laughs> and and you know this is this is something that is still in living memory in croatia in serbia in the balkans like there are there are partisans who are still alive who you know who remember this and and what pavlic did what the ustache did would have long ripples into into the balkan civil war you know people people didn't forget this you can't how do you forget half of your half of your neighbors just being murdered yeah and so hold on it it also seems like he targeted orthodox christians on top of uh the other things right yeah absolutely because uh croatia is catholic croatia has the distinction of being catholic so you know you've got Serbia, uh, whatever you want to define that as, as, as being pri- primarily Orthodox, Montenegro and Macedonia also, you know, a mix of Orthodox and in the case of Macedonia, a mix of Orthodox and Muslim. Um, but Croatia is kind of an outlier in Balkans. They are Catholic, um, at the, you know, and this was, this was part of the Ustasha identity. And you actually found a brick dedicated to the croatian bishop right their 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 patriarch archbishop allo okay stepanich stepanich yeah. stepanich is kind of interesting because like his hagiography like uh you know they they really like to focus in his biography on that that he was somehow uh against the ustache but was you know but was uh uh Unwill- unwillingly sort of sided with them because he had to. Um, I mean, that's up for, I, I think that's up for serious debate, but. Uh, I, I mean, there were many Catholic priests who di- who chose to die as opposed to exterminating people like in Croatia. Itself, yeah. So. Or working for uh, working as a religious leader in a government that was, whose program was ethnic cleansing right <laughs> so yeah i was surprised to see his name on that on that wall as well you know and and i think it needs i think we got to remind people listening to this that it's like okay these bricks were paid for by certain groups but the monument itself that contains these bricks is being funded by the fucking federal government that's like okay, yeah okay so um, I know we don't have much time. We have about 10 minutes left. Um, so how do people like, okay, so somebody who's heard this, who's really grossed out by the fact that it's, oh, I mean, if we're doing German analogies, like Ante Pavlich yes. is literally their Hitler, yeah. right? Okay. So how, if somebody who listened to this program is really grossed out by the fact that there is a Victims of Communism Memorial, what can they do to fight this? I don't know. I mean, I'd say pressure your representative and and just make sure that if you, you know, if you are reading an article that is, uh, you know, talking about how great it is that we have, uh, that we have a monument to the quote unquote victims of communism, you need to remind people uh, who it's actually memorializing. And, and I, and, you know, as we're, reaching the end here like the reason that this is back in the news right now is because even though the liberals defunded this project when they came to power recently a few days ago when the canadian federal budget was released 
under the purview of our new finance minister, Christia Freeland. And mm, we mentioned that her grandfather, Mikhail Chomiak, blah, blah, blah. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So Christia Freeland, who has spent her entire life enmeshed in this um, Banderite, you know, like post World War II Ukrainian nationalist diaspora, she and this this new budget is giving four million dollars now to complete the monument. So this is clearly like a personal project. This is something that I, f I feel like in a lot of ways, this is something she feels like she owes these groups, you know? Yeah. And of course, who would not want to whitewash their war criminal grandfather's legacy or is it her father? Except, exactly. And well, her, yeah, her grandfather. And what better way to whitewash and, and retcon history than to create a giant monument that equates uh, people like Ante Pavlovich uh, with, uh, you know, partisans. That's the, that. <laughs> that's another thing. That's another thing to remember too. Somebody pulled up a brick. Okay. That was dedicated to a Croatian fascist who was killed by a Serbian fascist. <laughs> so it was it was a dedication to a Croatian Ustache killed by a Chetnik. And and to me to me that just sums up the the just just absolute idiot forward movement of this monument. It it it's not even doing what it says it's doing. It's it's just essentially uh an attempt to Flatten his flatten. Oh, so wait, 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 that makes him not a victim of communism if he's being killed by a Serbian fest. Yeah, Duh. exactly. Yeah. So okay. So yeah, the um, whole project uh, is is sort of an end point. Its end goal is to flatten history and equate these two things. You know, it's it's quite. And the thing is that no matter how you slice it. um the communists were the only ones who reliably constantly fought against the fascists during World War II. Yes. I mean, you can look at that conflict as a battle between two different ideologies, one on the left and one on the right. <laughs> yes, that is a very valid interpretation. Um, and by the way, um, I, so I know you're doing a long series on this. How do people find this series? How do people find you? Um, and how do they find your music? Um, so you can find the podcast at The Bottleman. Um, we have a Twitter account, and that will take you to our Patreon. Uh, we do one free episode every week, and then we have one uh, episode that you uh, have to be a Patreon subscriber to listen to. So it's two episodes a week. Um, I for music, uh, you could just look up Operators or Wolf Parade. Um, Operators has a Patreon as well because, you know, uh, musicians' main source of uh, income, which is touring and live shows, that's been off the table because of uh, coronavirus. So, so there is an Operators Patreon where uh, you get two songs a month. Um, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Thank you so much. Are there any other bricks you want to quickly mention for people to look through? Um, no, I mean, I, I mean, there are definitely other bricks to uh, to things that I don't think need to be uh, memorialized. Like, uh, you know, there's a brick to the idea of uh, Vietnamese land reform circa 1950. <laughs> like, That's like basically I'm, ending slavery. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, um, yeah. So I, I think, you know, if you're listening to this and you're Canadian and you want to dig in more, uh, you can absolutely listen to the Bottleman podcast uh, series that we're doing on it um, or just write the Heritage Ministry. Ask them what's up. Ask them why uh, Ante Pavlovich has a brick and why you're paying for it. Exactly. Thank you so much for joining us. And I hope you come again. And um, so you're going to do this series. How long is this series going to last? Um, you know, I think the series is going to be ongoing probably through the year. So our first two episodes are Black Ribbon Day and the memorial itself. And then we have an upcoming 
a long episode with Yasha Levine about the history of Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian fascists in Canada and then Christia Freeland's family. Ooh, so. okay. So I'm going to yeah. be subscribing for that. And thank you again for coming. And um, Thanks, Aisha. And have a good um, rest of the day. And with that, um, yeah, thank you again. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.